it has taken 10 years to get to this moment. You have an opportunity in which you can change people's hearts and minds and hopefully balance accounts and bank accounts. And you need to take this moment and revel in it. What do you think influence means now? It's a word we hear so much. Influence is about changing how I think, how I feel and how I act. And I fundamentally believe that people invest in people. Even if it's a large conglomerate, it is because you believe in the ethos of individuals. My question too is what are you going to do with your influence? Use the platform that has been constructed by me and for me to leverage the voices of other advocates and of other people interested and wanting to work in this space. Because this isn't just about little people or wheelchair users, but there is a whole spectrum, a population the size of China who want to be 1 inclusive. 1.2 billion people. 1.2 billion people who have a spending power of 1.3 trillion US dollars. And they want to be included. In order for this movement to sustain itself and for it not to be a trend that occurs within one season, the voices of those most impacted by the issues have to be central. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to Inside Fashion on the BOF podcast. Many of you will have come across Sinead during Voices 2017, where Sinead gave a barnstorming talk that really shed a spotlight on how the fashion industry has been ignoring a really important group of people, disabled people. And based on the conversation that Tim Blanks our editor-at-large had with Sinead recently in Dublin for this special issue, we learned that actually the disabled community has a spending power of more than $1 trillion. So why is our industry ignoring this community? And what can we do as a community here at BOF to raise awareness that actually there's a really important opportunity here to engage with this community and the people that care about this community? Sinead dropped into the BOF office recently to chat about this topic, share some of her experiences since Voices 2017, just before an amazing shoot that we did with Tim Walker for our cover. So without further ado, here's Sinead Burke, Inside Fashion. Well, good afternoon. Hello. Sinead Burke, welcome back to the BOF headquarters. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to be here and to be blending in with all of the team. I know, you were sitting at someone's desk and I didn't even notice you were there. It was quite nice. So we have a lot to discuss today yes. um, and you know I'm really I'm really excited to have this conversation with you but you know just before we start I thought we should go back to that moment at Voices in December and just have a quick listen to refresh our memories in case not everyone has heard your barn raising talk that has had the whole industry talking since. So we'll just go back to that moment now very quickly. My money and my existence is as valid as yours, and yet I'm not accommodated for. So what is the point of disability in fashion? I would love to encourage you all to do it, to reach for your better instinct and the moral good. That's not how business works. How many disabled people are there in the world? Do you know? Globally, it's about 1.2 billion. How much money, discretionary income, do they have to spend? One trillion US dollars. And then you include their family members and their friends? That's 6.9 trillion US dollars. 
You want a reason, ladies and gentlemen, to embrace the disabled community and to look for a market which you can explore and be creative? There it is. Why should you do it? It's 2017, it's goddamn time. So, Shanae, take us back to that moment when you, when you, you, you gave that talk in front of this like, incredibly influential group of business leaders, entrepreneurs, designers, um, people from across the fashion industry and beyond. What was that experience like for you? It initially was very nerve-wracking. And I suppose to take it back a couple of steps, I remember how it came about in terms of a phone call with you. And you invited me to participate and you said, just a quick question, do you have an interest in fashion? And I yeah. kind of laughed and realized afterwards that it probably sounded quite rude down the phone and said, no, I do. And it's absolutely your fault and your responsibility for doing so. And for me, fashion has been an industry that I've long felt excluded from, despite being incredibly passionate about its transformational opportunity and ability to really change people and conversations and culture. And I remember distinctly standing side of stage, watching Dame Ellen MacArthur talk about like literally sailing the world and conquering. Circumnavigating the globe. Yes, and yeah. how that can be a metaphor and motif for business models. And I looked around the room and I could see so many of my heroes and the people who I admired and the people who I grew up learning about sitting in front of me. And I could feel my palms starting to shake and I could feel the temperature in myself rising. And I actually just had to take a step back and take a deep breath and really almost repeat to myself a monologue of, you know, it has taken 10 years to get to this moment. You have an opportunity in which you can change people's hearts and minds and hopefully balance accounts and bank accounts. And you need to take this moment and revel in it. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was just about enjoying it because it was almost a reprieve. And getting to stand up there and validate my lived experience and to be able to convince industry leaders that not only was this something that they should be interested in, but it is a topic which should be at the very top of their agenda in terms of transforming the entire fashion industry to be more inclusive. Mm -hmm. And although there is momentum and acceleration within that movement, often the voices of disabled people are completely silenced. So to get an opportunity like that, it was an honor. And I kind of just took it with both hands. You certainly did. <laughs> um, Give us your reflections. So, like, as soon as you got off that stage, yeah, what happened then? Because ev everyone, everyone heard what you had to say, but what, what did they want to know from you afterwards? It was so surreal. I remember really willing the audience along with me at various moments, and I definitely took my teaching experience into that whole paradigm in that it almost got a bit pantomime in elements. I think I was like doing this call back and forth between the audience, and it finished. And I saw Carmen Busquets stand up and give me a standing ovation to the left. And I was like, oh, oh, lovely, okay. And then this wave of applause occurred. And the one thing that I wanted to do and could think of was going to see Philip Picardi because in my bout of nervousness before getting on stage, he turned to me and went, you've got this, like, go kill it. I was like, oh, oh. Philip Picardi says, I need to do this. I must do this. Right. So I went on stage, enjoyed myself, reveled in the opportunity, came off, found Philip and went, I did it, I killed yeah. it. And he kind of just looked at me and went, yes, we're watching the next person now, but well done. <laughs> and it was that kind of moment and voices is this incredible incubator in that 
you know, the person who's sitting opposite you, you might have seen their face and their voice in every publication known to man since time immemorial, or you actually don't know who they are. And it's this wonderful paradigm of being introduced to really influential and interesting people. And afterwards, the response was extraordinary. People cared, and it was empathy rather than sympathy, and they wanted to take action rather than just settling for inspiration. And it was transformative, both on a personal and professional level. And it really underlined my own confidence, because I think for such a long time, this had just been a hobby or a pastime. And it had been something that I did in the moments where I really wanted to escape. And yet here was industry leaders who said, no, you know what you're talking about. This is important. Yeah. And I went, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. It was extraordinary. Um, and it's been quite a whirlwind yes. since Hugely. Voices. Um, I bumped into literally a couple of days later on the main floor at the Fashion Awards. And then since then, you've been all over the world, meeting with so many different people, taking this message to a bigger audience, both inside and outside fashion. Can you talk a little bit about what's happened sure. since the first few days after Voices and how, how you've kind of continued the momentum? Absolutely. So I met you at the Fashion Awards in the Royal Albert Hall a couple of days later. And for me, one of the extraordinary moments in that was in terms of people's thinking. So I went along with the communication store. And when I walked in, in terms of accessibility, they had sat me on the corner end of the table and they had a footstool beside my seat. And the footstool was covered in the fabric of the furniture. And I remember thinking, that's inclusion. Yeah. And I met extraordinary people. You know, I was introduced to Donatella Versace by somebody saying, by Daniel Marks saying, Sinead, have you met Donatella? And I was like, no, of course I haven't met Donatella. And I think it was also for Donatella, have you met Sinead? And I was thinking, where and when would Donatella have met me before? And she was extraordinarily kind. But from then, I went to Davos, the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. And I was the only Irish female delegate to attend Davos. And the way in which it typically works is it's the top 1% in the world of political leaders and those who are CEO of government and banking organizations and business organizations. And for me, I went as an advocate, and this is a real new lens through which the World Economic Forum is looking at their annual meeting. And I was quite naive. You know, there are 3,000 delegates, and of those 3,000 delegates, there are 600 speaking opportunities. And of those, I had four, particularly to talk about design, disability, education, and inclusion. And to be able to once again speak to people in the C-suite level, people who can have instantaneous impact within the landscape of business, education, society, was transformative. And to see that actually in many ways, the exclusion is not entirely conscious. They just weren't aware of my existence or of the disabled community's existence for so long. And in a way that kind of underpins it with such frustration. Why is that, do you think? Like why, why has this community been excluded for so long? Because it's not like it's it's a visible community in many respects. Yes, particularly those with physical disabilities is visible. But if we look at the history of treatment of disabled people, you know, it was often looked at through a medical model and everything was about attaining a cure or it was about, you know, institutionalizing people and taking them away from society. And segregation was almost seen to be the solution. 
And it has taken us such a long time to kind of mainstream that inclusion, even within our schooling system, that if we take a step back, can you name five disabled role models in different industries in society outside of the Paralympics and film and television? Mm -hmm. And when you begin to realize how difficult that is, we really need to ask such important societal questions about where we are opening up opportunities mm -hmm. for those role models to exist. I'm still thinking through names. I can only think of two. And uh, three. I thought of three. And not having them as role models just because they are disabled. Right. Because growing up, I really wanted the teacher at the top of the room to look like me. I really wanted to have a doll that looked like me. I mm -hmm. wanted to have a book where the protagonist looked like me. And I think those of us who are minority voices have continued to feel that way. And whilst there has been seismic shifts in terms of inclusion, that mm -hmm. doll still does not exist. That book rarely exists. I still find it difficult in terms of seeing myself, whether it is in magazines or campaigns. And that visibility is incredibly important because with advocacy circles, we have that phrase, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Mm -hmm. And I think it has just taken us far too long. So one of the dreams you also had was to feel kind of included by the industry in terms of what you're able to wear. And you, yes. you built this relationship with Burberry around the time that voices happened. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that came about and why that's been an important part of the advocacy and process for you sure. personally? I had done a TED Talk in New York in March 8th, 2017. And it was called Why Design Should Include Everyone. And it was through that, I believe, that we were introduced, mm -hmm. and which the opportunity of Voices was afforded to me. And I posted it on social media. There was beautiful branded imagery. And this woman, who I had never met, but we had been engaged on social media. Her name was Alice Delahunt. And she was heading up digital marketing within a global landscape within Burberry. And she sent me an email and said, I saw your TED talk. I see you're speaking at Voices, do you want to wear Burberry? And it was one of those emails that I kind of thought she's going to either A, look for my bank account details in the next one, or B, she turns out to be a prince in a foreign land. <laughs> and I replied and said, are you sure? Because this is going to take a lot of work. Yeah. And it was that collaboration between the two of us that really convinced me of the feasibility of this movement and of this message. So we met and I met Neve Watmore and Ruby Stevens. And the first time we met was within the Regent Street store. And they noticed immediately that I couldn't reach the rail. And whilst they were very happy to accommodate and assist me with that process, they realized that they hadn't thought about it before. But we had altered and adapted this incredible collection of beautiful pieces for voices. This sensational military jacket with white piping, wool pants, a check shirt, I think there was a cape, several capes involved, there always is when I'm around. And for me, what was important about that was that it wasn't a custom collection, but it was pieces already within their ready-to-wear that they pulled apart and put back together again. And they were able to do that with wonderful tailors that they have in-house. And for me, it's about just opening up that opportunity to more and more customers, because I think most of us need those tailoring techniques, even in a minimal way. And from that, has developed into being dressed for Davos. And again, meeting with the team in Burberry, and this time I went to Horseferry House, their headquarters. And I went to the basement to this beautiful facilitating room for changing and kind of exhibiting all of the different garments. And what I noticed immediately was they had bought in a low rail. 
They had chopped the legs off chairs and tables, and everything was in reaching distance for me. It was extraordinary. I have rarely been in spaces that were designed with me in mind, and getting to wear incredible clothes, and then getting to go to Christopher Bailey's last show, Mm -hmm. and getting to sit front row with, you know, a footstool at my seat that that had already been considered and thought about. And it was the level of human and emotional intelligence that had put into every interaction with me was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It really was. You've just come back from another fitting day. Yes, Are so you... exciting. So what's happening tomorrow? Tell me what's happening tomorrow. Am I allowed to tell you what's yes. happening tomorrow? So tomorrow, oh. It feels very surreal to be saying this. We are going to a studio to do a shoot with the one and only Tim Walker Mm -hmm. for the cover of the print issue of The Business of Fashion for Spring 2018. Mm -hmm. And I mean, did I ever think I would be able to say that sentence out loud? No. And yet we are. Um, I am disgustingly excited. I've had very little sleep and I'm running entirely on adrenaline, so hoping to sleep more tonight ahead of tomorrow. And... Yeah, I'm hoping Tim doesn't listen to this and hear me fawning all over him. But you and Tim had a conversation over the phone to talk about this image that we're going to create tomorrow. Yeah. What did you guys talk about? I am extraordinarily familiar with Tim's work. And when I was interested in the industry in my teenage years, he was one of the key photographers and creators of visuals that I had fallen in love with. So whether it is that beautiful image of the blue ball gown cascading over the spiral stairs and that beauty surrounded by almost derelict architecture, or if it is taking somebody who we already deem as quite extraordinary and positioning them through an ordinary lens or the inverse. So what he does through the lens of fairy tale and playing with personality types and you know how he can transform Tilda Swinton into six different people right in front of your eyes or how he can take somebody who we think we know everything about, be it Saoirse Ronan, and then tilt the lens on her, and all of a sudden you see a vulnerability or a glimpse back into when she was much younger working in Hollywood. And for me, it's that power to see the humanity behind the beauty, because traditionally he works with very beautiful individuals. That's really extraordinary, and it is less about the aesthetics of the image and always about giving confidence to the person who is in front of the lens. And that was fundamental to my conversation with Tim that I was really awestruck by was this importance that he placed on my comfort. And not only my comfort, but my confidence in creating an important, beautiful image. It's almost back to the days of getting your portrait painted and how do you want to be perceived and how you see yourself and how the world will see you. And how can we link it to this important issue, right? So like. Let's see what happens tomorrow. Yes. I'm almost a bit hesitant to talk about it because it hasn't happened yet. Yes. But for me, it's just really important. You know, he's created these quite, I hate the word iconic because yeah. it's so overused. But in this case, I think it's an True. appropriate word. Um, a really powerful image that helps to transmit yeah. and telegraph this message. And almost transcend it from what we assume it is supposed to be. Because I think still in many ways, because the number of people working within powerful positions within fashion and within any industry have rarely been touched by disability. That when we think of adaptive fashion or disability in any way, we don't think of beauty. We think of function, we think of clinical, we think of monochrome, we think of usefulness and almost making something less of an impairment and to be able to juxtapose it 
with an individual who is rooted in beauty and about amplifying that in so many divergent different ways. I think that's what's really extraordinary about it. And also that this is an industry yes. that communicates through imagery first yes. and foremost, right? So while you gave this really powerful barn raising talk and yeah. you know, you've been having individual conversations with you know, various people throughout the industry, I think in terms of actually capturing yeah. attention, yes. You know, this image could do a lot of the work in terms of creating that visibility and awareness it's that huge. you were talking about. I'm still very good friends with my English teacher from secondary school. And we had a conversation recently about that very idea. And I'm very fortunate to have been given an extraordinary education. And I really excelled within the education system that exists in Ireland. And she said to me, you know, very few people doubt your ability to use words and to think. You have validated your ability to do those things. But the power of a visual as a motif for inclusion is extraordinary because it is that which will challenge people because we are still so biased based on our sight and preconceived notions of what images are that it is that moment that will change people's thinking. Absolutely. Um, okay, I really want to talk about the cover story in a second. Yes. But I have to ask about Oprah because I'm... <laughs> I'm obsessed with Oprah. How did you meet Oprah? So what happened? How did that like I think we're both aware that I'm slightly tenacious as an individual and rarely take no for an answer. And I have been following Eva DuVernay and her trajectory almost since it began with, with Selma or at least came to kind of popular notice. And I had been to the premiere of Black Panther in Dublin, which I loved. I mean, Letitia Wright is extraordinary and is one of my heroes and I had been to it and I had spoken to Disney and said your next film is Wrinkle in Time. I really want to help because I believe in the messaging, I believe in the importance of having role models, I believe in Eva DuVernay and Oprah and Mindy Kaling and Reese Witherspoon as individuals to facilitate really important conversations and representation and they were like yeah we'll see if there's time. And then an email came into my inbox and said, can you go to London on this specific date to possibly interact with some of the cast? And I said, sure, do you know who's going to be there? And they said, we can't really guarantee anybody. And I said, no problem. They said, can you come up with some questions? So I did, and I showed up in London and I was sitting front row and right in front of me was Storm Reid, Ava DuVernay, Oprah Winfrey, Reese Witherspoon and Mindy Kaling. Wow. And I was like, wow. And a number of really important questions were asked in the room and I posed my question to Reese Witherspoon. She has been doing extraordinary things with her production company Hello Sunshine and particularly in perhaps the last two to three years she has been collaborating with women such as Kerry Washington, Mindy Kaling and voices who are extraordinarily important to the landscape of film and television in recent years but perhaps have not got the amplification that they rightly deserve and I asked her about privilege and why she chose to create an entity like Hello Sunshine and how she makes deliberate decisions to amplify voices that are less represented than hers and the call to arms she would give to those in the industry who have the power to do exactly what she is doing but as of yet are not doing so and she was really frank and she was really honest and said you know that initially it came about from almost this internal monologue that she realized she was getting older and the offers that she was getting were becoming more and more scarce and she began to realize that if she has experienced this, others must be also, or even in much more detrimental ways. 
And she realized the power of her own voice and the power of her own positioning and how she could utilize that to further amplify the voices of others. And for me, that's almost the kind of definition of allyship. It's that when you do have a space in which you can support others and amplify a movement along, it is your responsibility to do that. And it's not just something that we must do in a very clinical, legislative way, but can find beautiful, creative opportunities in which you also get to revel in and participate in. But it's important that we further the conversation. Sure. Well, that's a really nice segue into yeah. our new print issue, which yes. we're you know, just in the midst of closing as, as we speak. And the whole issue is about influence mm -hmm. and what, what we can do with our influence and what influence means today. And I wondered, um, you, know, you know, using even you know, Reese Witherspoon, this, this conversation you had with her as, as a kind of platform, you know, what do you think influence means now? It's a word we hear so much. Yeah. You know, the word influence or influencer. And we're constantly trying to measure it. Yeah. What who is, are they influencing? Yeah. What is influence? I think it's one of those words that has become or has been granted such currency in this millennial era where we're all trying to capture who is spending what and what they're spending on. But for me, influence is about changing how I think, how I feel and how I act. And there are a number of people and companies who do that on a global landscape. And I fundamentally believe that people invest in people, even if it's a large conglomerate, it is because you believe in the ethos of individuals. That's how I think. And for me, those individuals have been, whether it is Alice Delahunt at Burberry, who I have since got to know, or if it's my parents who have had an extraordinary influence on me. And not just because they are physically close to my immediate environment, but because of, you know, I went home on my very first day of school. It was the day of my fourth birthday. And I introduced myself to 30 strangers by saying, hi, my name is Sinead. I have a chondroplasia, A-C-H-O-N-D-R-O-P-L-A-S-I-A. I'm four years old today and I'm going to be a teacher. And that's because I had rehearsed that conversation at home. And when I told my parents that I was going to be a teacher, they never questioned it. Right. They never queried whether or not it would be possible or maybe I should have a smaller dream because we didn't know anybody who looked like me who was in that role. And it was that fundamental belief in me. And when I was older, I had that conversation with them and said, you know, why didn't you say anything? And they said, because we knew you would become the kind of person who, if the traditional route wasn't open to you, you would find a different way in. And that's what we wanted to flourish within you. And it's those kinds of people who have an impact on me in terms of influence. But I think words have a wave of importance. And what do we mean by influence? But is it just another word for sales and a vehicle for sales? Or does it mean something more when we look at advocates like Malala or an incredible woman called Weiwei who spoke so vibrantly at Davos about her experience of Rohingya and how when we listen to influential voices who have experiences different to ours, our whole frame of thinking can be changed. But I think we need a new word. Would you have one to suggest? Well, I don't know if we necessarily need a new word. I think it's just about being more um, thoughtful yeah. and expansive about what that word means. So the reason why I found this topic so pertinent 
uh, right now is because the word influence is used so much. And I yeah. think as we've been putting this issue together, as we've, you know, as, as the stories have started to come in and I start reading them, it's really helped to paint this picture that actually we all have influence. Yeah. Everyone has influence now. We all have a voice. We all have a platform, um, whether it's reaching, you know, hundreds of people that we know personally or millions of people that we don't. Uh, and we all have the ability to shape the world and environment in which we live. And we can all make decisions that have impact beyond our reach. You know, whether that be voting or whether that be choosing to spend your money in one place over the other or choosing the media that you consume or choosing not to have conversations that will impact upon your mental health. I think we all have choice and influence, exactly as you said. And even more so now, you know, as there's this whole conversation with social media about, or about social media and, you know, this whole scandal with Facebook. Yeah. The one thing that I think is so powerful about social media, you know, and for me personally, like BOF would never have been possible without social media. But I wouldn't be sitting across from you without social media. Yeah. So it, it does, it can still provide and play a really important role in the way we live now. And like it's, when there's so many important issues to address and like you see these things like the Me Too movement yeah. and uh, March for Our Lives Absolutely. and Black Lives Matter, like all of these really, really important themes and important issues have been brought to the fore because people have used their individual voices to come together. And they wouldn't have been framed in the same way through traditional roots. Yeah. So that, that brings me to my next question for you, yes. Sinead. It's like over the last few months or so, you have acquired yes. a new level of influence yeah. beyond what you had before. So my question too is, what are you going to do with your influence? Like what, what is, what is the, you know, now that you have all of these famous influential friends and contacts, what are you going to do with it? The first thing I'm going to do is take a step back. It has been, what, just over six months since Voices? Not even. Not even. So that was, Voices was like four months ago. Voices was four months ago. And here we are having an entirely different conversation that I could never have predicted. The first thing I do when I'm going to get home this week is sit down in front of a notebook and recall all of these extraordinary moments that I never could have predicted. Because I think when things gain momentum and when an avalanche almost builds, things can blend and you forget. And I want to really record all of these things because they're extraordinarily important. But I also want to use the platform that has been constructed by me and for me to leverage the voices of other advocates and of other people interested and wanting to work in this space. So whether that be mentoring design students, and I'm mentoring an incredible young woman at the moment called Keila Cass, who is designing a backpack for little people that when you turn it on its side and take it off and turn it on its side, it's fully functioning as a stool. And the way in which it's designed through 3D printing, it can bear the weight of an adult little person. And that has such functional importance. And when I was speaking with her, the one thing that she hadn't considered was the aesthetics of the item. So we're now looking at all sorts of beautiful materials and fabrics that can really amplify the beauty of this creation. 
and continue to do that and to facilitate those conversations, but to also work with CEOs and executives and those within the industry to have a very varied conversation and consulting and encourage them to reach out into the disabled community at large because this isn't just about little people or wheelchair users, but there is a whole spectrum, a population the size of China who want to be 1. inclusive. 1.2 billion people. 1.2 billion people who have a spending power of 1.3 trillion US dollars. And they want to be included. They want to give their money to brands and individuals which accommodate not just for their needs, but also for their tastes. So bridging this relationship between form and function to work further within design schools and not just on an individual level with students but on whole graduating classes so that the first time they come in contact with disability is not when they're about to retire. But to also look at the design of stores. And for me, that's one of the most frustrating parts of the shopping experience. I go in, I cannot reach the rail, I cannot use the changing room because I'm not strong enough to pull the curtain closed or I cannot reach the lock on the door and I cannot reach the till. And whilst in an idyllic environment, it would be wonderful if everything was built to fit me, that's not practical. And what we need to do fundamentally within this entire movement is not transform things in terms of concrete structure, but transform habits, conversations, hearts and minds. And I think that's particularly rooting it in empathy. So the ideal situation for me in that moment in terms of walking into a store is a sales agent coming up to me and saying, Hi, is there anything that I can do to make this more helpful for you? And I'm saying, actually, do you know what? See that lame skirt that's hanging up in sequin blue? Could you pass that down to me, please? Yes, right. a size six, thank you, I'd like yeah. to try it on. And it is, often we are so caught up in having the necessary language. And whilst I believe it is extraordinarily important to consult those impacted by language and refer to them on the terminology that they prefer, Often the fear of making mistakes and getting things wrong is creating this stagnation. And we're almost thinking... And it creates a distance, right? A huge distance. Yeah. And for me, it's about scaffolding that because there is huge emotional labor in continuously being the advocate and having to validate your wants and ambitions, but also your existence. And it is also the responsibility of the industry to tap into this profitable market and meet people halfway. Mm-hmm. Um, Speaking of changing the way people kind of approach someone with disabilities, can you, can you educate me on like how, how we can overcome some of the hurdles you're talking about? So people don't know the right language to use. You know, people don't know how the right physical interaction, yeah. right? So, you know, for, just because it's a question that people probably want yeah. to ask, but are a bit too scared to ask. Like, for someone interacting with you, how, first of all, how do you like to be referred to? And sure. what's the language people, um, you know, you would recommend people use when they meet someone like you? The biggest advice that I could give somebody is to encourage them to be brave and to ask that question. Because I think the risk and the fear is that you will offend somebody. But by not doing anything makes it worse 
To give you a, an almost facetious example, it is a regular occurrence that I will be in a supermarket and a child will point me out and say, you know, I, this is how I know I'm aging because when I was younger it used to be, there's a little girl and now I'm, there's a little mammy. I'm like, I have no children. <laughs> and the parents or whatever adult is with They're them. They're mortified. Mortified. Yeah. Like, how could my child do this? Like, so what do they do? In that scenario, they as quickly as possible physically take that child out of that situation or they death glare them, do not say another don't word. Say don't say anything. Don't yeah. say. And actually what we're encouraging there is what we've conditioned all of society to do, that disability is not an issue which we should speak about. And these are people who we should almost leave alone due to our own embarrassment because we don't have the right lexicon or at least we don't think we do. And actually what should happen in that moment is the parent or the adult should say, yes, that is a little woman. Why don't you say hello? And they go, hi, I'm Mark. And I go, hi, I'm Sinead, how are you? And Mark goes, fine, thanks, and walks off. And what we have done in that environment is completely humanized it and rooted it again in empathy. And it's about creating this human contact. And that is a macro example for what needs to happen in all of society. And I am very comfortable with, you know, people asking me questions saying, Sinead, I'm terribly tall. I realize me standing at my height is going to be a strain on your neck. What's most comfortable for you? And I'd say, I'm really glad you asked that question. So sometimes my friends get down on their knees to talk to me, but the environment means that that's not always comfortable. And actually what's best is if you sit and I stand, because depending on what I'm wearing, climbing on a chair doesn't give me great dignity or confidence. Or people saying to me, you know, what do you prefer to be referred to as or called? And I think those who are a minority voice have such experience in articulating their own personhood that it's an act of kindness to mm. ask people what they prefer. And I think those who are the majority voice need to be very comfortable feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. Because otherwise there just comes this distance and it continues to be this us versus them and yeah. there's no involvement. It's so interesting that you say that because when I came up on stage at Voices after yeah. you gave the talk, I instantly realized I didn't know whether I should bend down yeah. and like kneel and talk to you that way or if I should stand. Mine is always like whatever's, I'm like the complete opposite. I'm like, what makes you more comfortable in my I know, but I just, I got on stage and it's obviously something I never had to contend with before. And then of course, I'm not so tall <laughs> myself. Well, in comparison so. to me, hang around with me all the time. <laughs> so I felt, I felt okay in the end. But it's that, it's, it's power yeah. in a very different way. And I think it's about how we, articulate it and it's about making people feel comfort within their discomfort and I think more and more we just have to embrace that we have to ask the difficult questions to educate ourselves and to make other people feel respected mm -hmm. um, Tim just filed his story today so I was having a read and there was one thing that you said to him which I just wanted to explore a bit with sure. you you said it no longer makes financial sense just to accommodate the bell curve of society because people invest in people, which means they are more willing to invest in a brand with a human story. What did you mean by that? For me, what has been really interesting since Voices and Davos, London Fashion Week and this cover shoot is how the people around me, those closest to me, how their opinions have changed of a British heritage brand. Burberry. 
And that's not just because they have been extraordinarily kind to me, but it impinges and underpins more than impinges, underpins the ethos of that brand. And my sisters, who are younger than me and are aspirational customers within the luxury market, have since bought fragrance, lipstick, cosmetics, I believe a pair of sunglasses, and a scarf. Now, will those investments transform the share price of Burberry? No. But they believe in what that brand stands for and what they're communicating. And for me, isn't that why there's such interest in the continuous game of musical chairs as regards to who's going to be creative director in various different brands? Because it's not just about what they will interpret the brand that they are inheriting and how they will perceive that on the runway, but it's what we think of them as individuals. I mean, I can still remember being slightly shocked at Raph going to Calvin Klein and thinking, how is he going to, oh, okay, he's going to put popcorn on the floor. I see it now, mm -hmm, absolutely. And it is those human characteristics that we are so ensconced by because fashion is personal. It is one of the few industries that touches everybody's skin. And I'm constantly beguiled by the fact that at the end of every news bulletin, there is information about sport in which is passing a ball from one end to another. And yet here is an industry in which we all participate in because we all get dressed every day. And yet there's still this level of facetiousness considered by so many. And for me, it's that human and tangible aspect to the fashion industry that makes it so provocative, interesting, and the reason why people invest in it, because at every element of the process, human hands, thoughts and minds and creativity are solely responsible for the output. And so because a brand, say like Burberry or another one, has taken a vested interest in someone like you, you're saying that that level of humanity reflects on the brand as a whole. And that's not just about attracting customers like you, it's just attracting customers in general. Absolutely. When you look at the analysis as regards to the spending power of disabled people, you know, they have a spending power of about 1.2 to 1.3 trillion US dollars. And then you bring in their family and friends, which is exactly what I'm talking about. And that's 6.9 trillion US dollars. And I mean, you'll buy something or consume something and go and talk to those dearest to you and they'll go, oh, and it's exactly that. It's influence, what we've been talking about. And it's influence at a micro level that can have such macro implications because it grows and it flourishes. And yeah, who knows where it will keep going to. Well, that is a really good question to end on. I think this is just the beginning still of your journey. It's been such a pleasure um, getting to know you through this process and I'm really excited about tomorrow <laughs> and what image we're all gonna create together. It's gonna be fun. And um, yeah, maybe we should just end on some notes of advice. Yes. Which is, you know, if, if you're out there and you're a designer or CEO of a brand or someone who wants to make an impact mm -hmm. in this, space yes. in this way you know what what can you do tomorrow Absolutely. what can what can someone do tomorrow to start having the kind of impact um that we all 
hope will they will be able to have as a result of you know some of the work that you know we've been doing with you over the past few months i think at the most senior level within the c suite when we're having conversations around share price and audience we need to take very seriously the disabled market as valuable and valid consumers but also as employees disabled people think differently they have to for their survival i am articulate organized and empathetic and have very high emotional intelligence not just because those are traits that i want but because traits that i need to have so looking at all of these people as valid entities with the infrastructure of fashion and considering them and targeting them very strategically within the boardroom we also need to look at this as an opportunity for creativity and innovation and looking at how it can be an educational process particularly within design that can infiltrate all the different echelons within a brand's continuous array of collections we need to look at marketing and visibility and straddle the boundary between what some may perceive to be exploitation and what others will see as visibility and importance earlier on we were discussing how much i would have loved growing up to see somebody like me on a magazine cover on a billboard when i walked into an airport seeing a beautiful advertisement from a luxury fashion house where somebody looked like me and pairing that with what could be seen as good for pr but it's also good for people the design of fashion stores and how we're not limiting our thinking to the redesigning of the physical structure but also in redesigning our treatment of people and our training of staff looking at this as a process for collaboration fundamentally within advocacy circles there is a phrase nothing about us without us and for me in order for this movement to sustain itself and for it not to be a trend that occurs within one season the voices of those most impacted by the issues have to be central and that occurs through being comfortable within the discomfort and inviting disabled people to the table within design conversations within strategic meetings to really get their lived experience to inform the entire structure to follow good examples whether it is open style who collaborate with parsons whether it is lucy jones whether it is alays in canada and to really look at the next generation of designers and individuals who could be working within their brand and to be challenging of how they can foster support new thinking within this arena i think it would be such a pity if people don't come in contact with different types of bodies and different types of individuals within that very exciting educational space within college so whether they can fund bursaries or whether they can create a whole new curriculum the opportunities for this are endless you just have to be hungry for it and the market's open why wouldn't you well let's make them hungry let's do it and let's open the market i look forward to seeing you tomorrow morning <laughs> and um thanks again for thank everything you. for all your advice no thank you for everything and expertise it's uh, it's always very enlightening to speak to you so that's all for inside fashion for today i'm imran ahmed founder and ceo of the business of fashion if you want to check out shanade's talk from voices make sure you check out the description uh, of this podcast episode um, and we'll make sure to put a link in there so you can find it really quickly 
And if you're just interested in voices generally, Voices is our annual gathering for big thinkers from inside and outside the fashion industry. It happens every December just outside London at the Soho Farmhouse. And um, we're always looking for interesting people to, to join us, both as part of our community that attends, but also on stage. So if you'd like to learn more about Voices, please email us at voices at businessoffashion.com. So that's all for today. And uh, thank you, Sinead. Bye. See you soon. Bye. To read Tim's interview with Sinead, you can find a link in the description for this podcast or order your special print edition of The Age of Influence on businessoffashion.com. If you're interested in the business of fashion, you may also want to know about our daily digest newsletter. Each morning, hundreds of thousands of people around the world wake up to this newsletter, which is your free essential daily briefing on everything going on in the fashion world everywhere. So if you'd like to sign up for this newsletter, please visit businessoffashion.com newsletter.